Last summer, my first sermon from this pulpit was on pluralism, progressivism, and pragmatism. And if you visited the UUCF website this past week, you saw a particularly pluralistic set of options being offered for this morning. At 10 a.m., a UU Christian service in the chapel. At 11 a.m., a Buddhist-themed sermon. And at 12.15, our atheist, humanist, agnostic discussion group, which we lovingly call AHA, atheist, humanist, agnostic. Now, we still have much work to do as a congregation. You heard some about it earlier with this book, The New Jim Crow, and as a larger UU movement in increasing some forms of diversity. But I'm grateful to be part of a congregation and a denomination that for decades has embraced a robust religious pluralism. We don't necessarily see any conflict with someone who may want to celebrate communion with the Christians at 10 o'clock, meditate in in the Buddhist tradition at 11 o'clock, and dialogue with the atheists, humanists, and agnostics at noon. Indeed, having already attended that 10 a.m. UU Christian service, if I didn't have a committee meeting at the 11 a.m. service, I might well be attending that AHA discussion group, achieving what we could call a UUCF hat trick of attending three different diversity groups back-to-back on the same Sunday. Now, if you're looking to maximize your trip here to UUCF each Sunday, almost every week there is a group meeting at 10 o'clock a.m. before the main service, and that will continue throughout the summer. We're not changing the times. The Friendly Forum Discussion Week uh, group is each week at 10 a.m., as well as rotating groups in the chapel. UU Christians on first Sundays, UU Buddhists on the second and fourth Sundays, Earth Spirituality on the third Sundays, which you could call UU Pagans. And it's always interesting to invite people to think about the adjectives and nouns there. You know, are you a UU Christian or a Christian UU? Or are you a UU Pagan? You know, what's the adjective? What's the noun? What's being modified? And that, again, may be a separate uh, sermon. But there's also, uh, after the service, we've been alternating between that AHA, Atheist Humanist Agnostic Group, and an intro to philosophy class. So you can really make the most of your miles per gallon on your way here each Sunday if you choose. We don't burn you out, though. But for now, I'd like to transition from a focus on pluralism to a focus on that second and third parts of that July sermon title I shared with you earlier, Progressivism and pragmatism. I'm interested in the ways that progressivism, how things sometimes improve, things don't always improve, but sometimes they do, and pragmatism, what actually works. I'm interested in how those two things can be applied to the Buddhist tradition here in the West in the 21st century. And I've titled this morning's sermon, Pragmatic Buddhism, Westernized Dharma, and 21st Century Sangha as a play on what are known as the three jewels of Buddhism, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Loosely translated, we could say that these three jewels are awakening. Buddha literally means awakened one. It's a title, right? Like, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title, meaning anointed one. You know, Mahatma isn't Gandhi's first name, right? It's it's a title. Mahandas Gandhi uh, is his actual name. So, Buddha means awakened one. So that first jewel of the Dharma is awakening. The second is teaching. Dharma means teaching or the path to getting to awakening or enlightenment. And the third is community. Sangha means that community of Buddhist practitioners who accompany one another on that eightfold path. 
So those three jewels of Buddha Dharma Sangha are also known as the three refuges. Uh, They're the three things that Buddhist practitioners can choose to take refuge in, awakening, teaching, and community as sort of an alternative to other ways of being in the world. But just like the various other religious groups in this country, there are many different types of Buddhist communities. And it's also always interesting to hear stories of people who, for example, flee conservative Christian churches only to discover in shock that there are strains of Buddhism with just as much rigidity, sexism, and hierarchy, especially if you spend any time in some of the traditional Buddhist, I mean, traditional Asian countries that have Buddhist cultures, that they have just as much rigidity, sexism, and hierarchy as fundamentalist Christianity that some people are fleeing. And of course, it's similarly fascinating to hear stories of individuals raised in a traditionalist sect of any religion who come to discover that they don't have to go elsewhere for mystical, experiential strains, that they're actually in their own tradition, they were just previously unaware of them. So like Sufism in Islam, or Kabbalah in Judaism, or the contemplative Christian tradition, which started... You know, all the way back with the desert mothers and fathers and continues through Teresa of Avila, John on the Cross, and many others. And my interest this morning is in a particular type of Buddhism that is sometimes called pragmatic Buddhism, which emphasizes what individuals can test in the crucible of their own firsthand experience, what they can know to be true for themselves, not based on just on the secondhand authority of a teacher who says, oh, this is true, just, just trust me. No, you can test it for yourself. So I'm less interested in rituals and traditions. I mean, I'm interested in those sort of from an academic perspective, but I'm I'm less interested in those in some ways, those rituals and traditions that have built up over the centuries in Buddhist cultures. But I've come to recognize that many of those have little connection to Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha. So likewise, I'm interested in a westernized dharma, Buddhist teachings that seek to integrate what we know about Western psychology, modern science, contemporary technology. And I'm interested in a 21st century Sangha, a Buddhist community that is of, by, and for us in this time and place, though of course learning from the best of what we've come to know in the previous millennia. And one of the many helpful guides that I've found is Daniel Ingram. Uh, You heard um, some of the foreword of his book earlier. Ingram's also an MD. He's a board-certified emergency medical physician. I think he's in Alabama, of all places, with a master's degree in public health. And he is the author of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book. Now, he did self-publish that book, but it's come to be quite popular in the pragmatic Buddhist community. And part of why he self-published it is that he also published it for free on the Internet. He just wanted... He didn't need the money. He's, uh, he said, I just want people to have this. And there's also a tension there, in, without going into this too much, with many, um, Buddha also said you, should, you shouldn't charge for the teachings. So that was part of why he chose not to. You should give that these, these teachings are priceless. You shouldn't benefit from them. So that's part of why he self-published. But for six months, from October to March, I facilitated a study of this book twice a month during our 10 a.m. UU Buddhist Fellowship. And allow me to publicly thank everyone who persevered through that study, because it, it's not the, we, we kind of skipped through it and looked at excerpts. I mean, it's, it's actually a difficult book, but I appreciate, we had some great conversations. But Ingram is both unusual and admit, self-admittedly hardcore, and his approach understandably doesn't appeal to everyone. 
And unless hardcore, and I wouldn't really recommend that you rush out to buy this book. I didn't recommend that it be on the book table in the atrium. Unless hardcore Buddhist practice is right for you at this time, there are easier and better places to start. Though we did have some people start coming to our Buddhist group here because they saw on the internet that we were studying Ingram's book. And they said, wow, there must be some really hardcore, because I mean, they were familiar with Ingram's book. And they're like, wow, they're studying that at a, so... Anyway, so we kind of have a range of practitioners, so you're certainly welcome to come uh, wherever your level of interest in Buddhism. Personally, I'm drawn both to Ingram's pragmatism and to his directness about what, in his experience, does and doesn't contribute to the full depths of transformation, concentration, and insight that Buddhism can offer. And there's some baggage that some Buddhist traditions have around whether you can share about your experience, whether that's prideful. And Ingram and is part of this pragmatic Buddhist movement that says that's actually inhibiting people's growth, that you really need to be clear about what your actual first-hand experience is. So it's somewhat controversial, depending on who you talk to. And while there are many great introductory Buddhist books out there, I'm great, and I'm grateful for many of them, there can be a temptation to always just stay on the surface of religious traditions. And we Unitarian Universalists may be particularly susceptible to that temptation to only experiment with the light, easy, and accessible aspects of world religions, only rarely delving into the heavier harder or less accessible aspects. Even so, some of the richest parts of religious traditions may only come to fruition through focused practice and study. Part of what you heard from that reading earlier is him saying he realized he couldn't think his way out of this problem. He had this experience, and the only way to continue, as he came to learn, was what he called completing the cycle of practice. It was something he had to do. You could, I talked about this a few weeks ago with the artist way, that you can't just read this book about reclaiming your creativity. You actually have to do the creative exercises or it's not going to work. You, have, you can't just think your way through it. Thus, the wonderful religious pluralism we surveyed earlier of a progressive Christian service at 10 o'clock Buddhist meditation at 11 and humanist dialogue at noon, all under the same roof, as wonderful as that is, can, and that can keep all those traditions accountable to one another, it can um, keep them in conversation from becoming too insulated, but it can also undercut that, the benefit that can come from moving deeply into one tradition. Nevertheless, an argument could be made that a Unitarian Universalist congregation may be one of the best places to explore pragmatic Buddhism, westernized Dharma, and a 21st century Sangha. For practitioners interested in stripping away unnecessary hindrances of dogma, ritual, hierarchy, and myth that have built up in some forms of Buddhism, a UU congregation could potentially be a supportive community for those looking to question the value of alleged taboos and explore new frontiers, such as the way that technology might not only be a hindrance, but in some ways might come to be a help, even in mindfulness practices. And for anyone who's wondering about whether my interest in progressive, pragmatic Buddhism is analogous to my interest in progressive, pragmatic Christianity or progressive, pragmatic Hinduism, progressive, pragmatic Islam, humanism, Judaism, etc., the answer is yes. There's a parallel irony that both Buddhism and Christianity have come to be dominated in some areas by dogma, ritual, and hierarchy in ways that in many cases would be anathema to the historical Buddha, to the historical Jesus. It was much of what they were working against in their own time. 
At the same time, I would readily affirm that innovations have come to light in the last few millennia, of which Siddhartha Gautama and Jesus of Nazareth would have had no way to have a conception of. But that's why I'm drawn to pragmatism. I'm open to using all the tools at our disposal as wisely and as skillfully as we can. Buddhists refer to that approach as skillful means or expedient means. The approach that is useful at one time may not be useful later and vice versa. As the old Buddhist parable tells us, just because a raft helps you cross a river doesn't mean you have to carry that raft around with you forever. Using a raft to cross the river safely, that is skillful means. But so too is the wisdom to leave that raft at the river's edge once you've crossed. Are there any rafts that maybe were helpful to you that are in your basement now or in your closet or in your attic or on your mantelpiece? This is both metaphorical and literal, taking up headspace, taking up heart space that maybe you need to let go of in gratitude but that you need some new skillful means. So there may be times when ritual or myth or dogma or hierarchy have their uses, and using them may be skillful means. But many religious communities fall into danger when they forget that those forms are merely skillful means and not ends in themselves. There are also times and places where it is wise to leave those rituals, myths, dogmas, and hierarchies by the side of the river, so to speak, in gratitude for their help, but in recognition that to maintain them would be a burdensome encumbrance. If, for instance, the next stage of your journey will take you through, literally or metaphorically, a long forest or desert where a raft just isn't needed. In the coming days and weeks, again, I invite you to give some thought to the communities and groups you're involved with, to your life, to even the place where you live, about what are and aren't skillful means for you. Now, having briefly introduced pragmatic Buddhism, I'd like to at least briefly give you a taste of Ingram's unusually hardcore dharma. Now, it took us six months, twice a month, for about 45 minutes to even, you know, to, to touch some of the highlights of, we're not, we're not going to get through it in 20 minutes this morning, but let me give you a taste of what might be possible for 21st century Buddhist practitioners. But first, it may be helpful to name how much of a time commitment, you know, when do we become hardcore? How much of a time commitment are we talking about? Just as you need to train in increasingly large regular increments to become a concert pianist, or an Ironman triathlete, or Ashley could tell you about how she went from 5Ks to half marathons. So too, most people who seek awakening or enlightenment commit to regular training. And Ingram's rule of thumb is similar to what I've seen in other contemplative traditions, perhaps only 10 minutes a day at first, building up to perhaps 20 minutes twice a day, all the way up to eventually one or two hours per day. Now, this practice allows you to strengthen your concentration skills. That's really important at first, which allows you to stabilize what Buddhists call the monkey mind. The most I've ever been able to work into my schedule is about 45 minutes twice a day, but that was before starting work on my dissertation, at which point I had to cut back on my uh, meditation or you know, if I was going to get my other work done and ever talk to my wife, right? You, know, you, have to, you have to balance out these things about what you have time for, and sleep is important too. I always tell people that if, if they come to me and say, I keep falling asleep in my meditation practice, well, you need to get more sleep. I mean, your, your spiritual practice, if that's the case, is 
sleep. <laughs> you, need, you need to practice eight hours of sleep. Then, we'll, then come back to me and we'll talk about meditation. We can't do it all. If you're currently pursuing an advanced degree, training for a marathon, starting a new job, becoming a first-time parent, it may not be right for you at this time to try to start practicing two hours a day, nor would I say to recommend for most people to jump right into that. But a high-stress time could be precisely the time to commit to meditating 10 to 20 minutes a day. I've heard many different busy people say, I'm too busy not to meditate. I'm too busy not to exercise. Because mindfulness and exercise are the only thing keeping me sane and grounded in the maelstrom of all I have going on. But I promised that Ingram was hardcore, so here's an example of what it could look like to take your meditation practice to the next level. Ingram writes, let's say you could allocate 365 hours out of one year to formal meditation practice. Given a choice, I would be more inclined to take half of those hours, about 182, and do a 10-day retreat practicing hard and consistently, wait for it, 18 hours a day with minimal breaks at the beginning of the year and then spend half an hour meditating all the other days. I would be much more likely to cross into some interesting territory early on and overcome some of the initial hurdles than if I spent one hour each day of that year practicing well. The amount of time and effort is the same, but the effect is likely to be quite different. I recommend greater than five-day retreats whenever possible because those middle days tend to be the most fruitful when you're not either arriving or leaving. Perhaps now is also the time to mention that when you start listening to many world-class meditators, you start hearing about things like three-year retreats. These are sort of badges of honor if you start talking to who's been on a three-year retreat and who hasn't. Uh, Seriously. Uh, However, most of us have too many commitments to job or to family or to mortgages, such that a five- or ten-day retreat once a year would be a challenge, much less a three-year retreat. But that's, again, where pragmatism can perhaps helpfully come in. As you study religious traditions across the board, it's important to become aware of what is sometimes called the monastic bias. It's a prejudice that the purest and most advanced forms of spirituality are only achievable by an isolated individual that's usually some form of hermit living on the edge of a cloistered monastic community. But this monastic bias is being increasingly questioned. I often remind couples whose wedding, at whose wedding I will be officiating that marriage at its best can be a school for love. The challenge and invitation of marriage is to continually choose to love your partner. I've likewise sometimes heard children described as little Zen masters who are naturally adept at triggering our shadow selves. As you may have heard me say before, our family members are particularly good at pushing our buttons because they're the ones who sewed our buttons on in the first place. (laughs) And the point is that all of our life, from neurotic family members to obnoxious bosses, from stressed-out partners to high-demand children, all parts of our life are invitations to practice mindfulness and compassion if you choose to bring that intention to that experience. And I invite you to consider the possibility that bringing three years of daily mindful, compassionate intentionality to your marriage, to your parenting, to your work, or to any relationship 
even your relationship with yourself, perhaps most importantly, that that could be even more beneficial to your spiritual growth than a three-year retreat sequestered in the mountains. I invite you to consider that the point of logging hours on your meditation cushion is not sufficient or even valuable for the most part in and of itself if it doesn't lead to greater mindfulness and compassion in the rest of your life. And arguably, someone who spends three years actively trying to practice mindfulness and compassion in every part of their life and who has to deal with all the ways that that's extremely difficult and all the interruptions and all the tiredness and stress that tries to do mindfulness and compassion in the midst of that and make adjustments based on their actual experience may be much better at actual living of Buddhism in the world than someone who spends three years meditating in a highly controlled retreat environment. That retreatant will likely have tremendous insight into reality, but will likely not be well equipped to reintegrate and live out those insights in the Western world. And speaking at least for myself and a growing number of others, my interest is not in an esoteric Buddhism, but in a pragmatic Buddhism, a westernized dharma, and a 21st century sangha. Now, there's, of course, a lot more to be said about Buddhism, which is a 2,500-year-old tradition that's very diverse. And Buddhists love lists, so we could talk much longer and with great benefit this morning about the three characteristics of reality, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Paths, and many others. But since we've dipped our toes briefly this morning into one teacher's perspective of hardcore dharma, I want to be sure not to leave you with the frequent misimpression that if you were to become a hardcore Buddhist practitioner at some time in your life, meditate for two hours each day, go on 10-day retreats each year, even go on maybe a three-month retreat, experience enlightenment, then you and your life would not be perfect as a result. You would presumably lessen your suffering. You would presumably better understand the nature of reality in one particular way. You would presumably increase your compassion for all beings. But neither you nor your life would be perfect. As John Kabat-Zinn wrote a great book around that I would recommend to you, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. And what he did was interview family members of enlightened people, and it's, 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 it's a great book. Ingram writes on this point, if you were to look at the life of Buddha, who by definition is enlightened as it gets in Buddhism, lots of bad things happened to him after his enlightenment, at least according to the texts. He had chronic headaches, he had back pain, he got illnesses, he was attacked by bandits, people tried to kill him, his own order broke into warring factions, people harassed him, so forth and so on. Does that sound a little like the life of Jesus, Gandhi? Martin Luther King, many others, who had great spiritual insights, but who still had conflict in the world, including in the case of all those figures I named being killed for their beliefs. Now, we can't control the vicissitudes of the world, but we can learn to respond to whatever comes our way with greater mindfulness, with greater insight, with greater and deeper compassion. I'm grateful for your presence here this morning. The great hope of this religious community is that in and with and through our very diversity, we might live our way together into what Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community. And whether your path to that beloved community is Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, science, or some other combination, for this morning, I leave you with this Buddhist blessing. 
May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be whole.